Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with Bill Arnold. I am the Bill Arnold part of that little sentence, and I'm awfully glad that we have this time together today. I hope your day's been going well. I've got uh, Doug Blair coming on in just a minute. He's a news producer for The Daily Signal. He's also a co-host of The Daily Signal podcast. I'm looking forward to chatting with him. And then Dr. Greg Borgon's coming in studio. We're going to talk about communication fidelity because we're certainly experiencing a lot of unrestrained communication in the form of manipulated misinformation and the suppression of free speech. So we're going to talk about that. And then Susie Larson is going to join me for hour two. So let's get things started with um, uh, Doug Blair, again, a news producer for The Daily Signal, and he's with me right now on our studio line. Doug, welcome. Hey, Bill. Thanks so much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I've been following you on The Daily Signal, and I always encourage people to go to dailysignal.com, but you've got uh, quite a thread going on your work at the Supreme Court right now. You've been... uh, They're spending a lot of time interviewing people. I want to hear all about it. Absolutely. So last night when the news broke uh, that there had been a leaked document that indicated that Roe v. Wade was likely going to be struck down by the Supreme Court, uh, I I was well aware of the fact that this was going to cause a firestorm, especially in Washington, D.C. D.C. is a very, very, very left city, very blue, very democratic uh, so I was I was well aware that people were going to go to the Supreme Court to protest. So I, I lived 15 minutes away from the court, put on my put on my pants, put on my shoes, walked out to the Supreme Court, and lo and behold, there was a group of probably about 200 300 protesters just standing outside, screaming at the court, yelling obscenities about the justices. Uh, very very angry, very very upset mm-hmm. at the news they had just heard. Um, but it was it was just madness. I mean, the, the crowd continued to grow and to grow. And the scariest thing to me that really kind of like freaked me out was that they treated these pro-life activists who had shown up. There were probably maybe about 20, 25 that ever showed up during the procedure, about maybe four hours worth of protesting. And they, they just aggressively tried to shut them down, tried to push them out, basically told them they weren't welcome there. They were yelling, screaming at them as well. Um, one group that particularly struck my attention was – a group of Catholic university students, Catholic universities, a local, as you might have guessed, Catholic school in the DMV in the D.C. area. And they'd just come to, you know, pray. They'd come to express their support for what the justices were doing. They'd come to express their support for an end to Roe and protections for the unborn. And these these activists got into their face. They circled around them. They surrounded them and were screaming and yelling at them. I was scared that they were going to be physically attacked and hurt. Thankfully, that group was not physically touched, but there were other groups of pro-like protesters who were actually attacked. Doug, let's start with the leak itself. Um, when this leak got out, obviously it was very intentional because it has a purpose, and someone is designing this to produce some outcome, correct? Correct. So the current going theory, and we will learn more as an investigation goes on, Chief Justice John Roberts has decided that he's going to launch an investigation to the source of this leak. But the current going theory is that this was one of the clerks 
but one of the justices themselves. It's very unlikely as one of the justices themselves. This is a, a, a massive breach of mm-hmm. trust in the Supreme Court, so it's likely that it was one of the clerks. Now, we're thinking that it was probably a clerk of one of the leftist judges, one of the judges who probably was in favor of keeping Roe uh, on the, in, in law, and they probably were trying to push the justices who were maybe on the fence or the justices who could have been persuaded to come to the, the liberal position to switch their vote through public pressure. Obviously, as we saw, there was a lot of, lot of, lot of response, mostly angry response from pro-choice uh, and pro-abortion people into, you know, pressuring the justices to, to rule differently because they wanted to obviously maintain those abortion uh, laws in place that they have right now. But it's likely this was, a, this was politically motivated, and that, that's why it's so scary that this was something that was done to an institution that generally is above politics. Doug, these clerk jobs are obviously very serious positions because you're privy to some incredibly sensitive information and when you said it's probably a clerk from the left side or a justice themselves, and you probably are saying it's not a justice, but I wonder if the justice had knowledge of what the clerk was doing. I mean, it's absolutely a possibility, yeah. but this I think it's unprecedented. And I, I really want to let your listeners know this. This is unprecedented. This has never happened in the history of the court. Now, we've seen that decisions have been leaked in the past, but that's usually after the case is done. That means that it was like, oh, well, here were the deliberations. This is what you know they were thinking when they did it. This is the first time, at least, I've been talking to a lot of our legal experts here at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, this is the first time that we've seen a, an ongoing court case have its pre-draft decision leaked to the press. And it's very clearly done with a political motivation. I believe that the, the clerk probably viewed this as a super high-stakes situation, that they were going to bend the ethics and the morals of their position to get this done and to get their position known. I mean, this is one of the things that's so scary about this, again, is that this is why we have these private institutions that are, that are making these types of laws, because we want the Supreme Court to be above the fray. We want the Supreme Court to be apolitical. Mm-hmm. They're supposed to judge based on the merits of the Constitution, not on what the public pressure says that they should do. So clearly, the only reason you would release this information is because you believe that enough public pressure and to be frank, public threatening can maybe oh. force a justice to change their mind for fear of their own safety. Mm-hmm. Doug, obviously this is a draft and they've leaked it and that was intentional, but uh, I don't know how things work with the Supreme Court, but I, you know, you, I watch enough sports where if my beloved Minnesota Twins are up by five runs and there's two outs, I, I think to myself, ah, this game's over. But I've seen them lose at that point. <laughs> How did you lose that game? But, I mean, it's not over till it's over, and the decision's not made until the end of June. So why are they taking this first draft and making it as if it's already happened and it's already done? Well, the reason why that they thought that they would, they would release this draft, and it was to basically light a fire. Like I said, again, yeah. this was politically motivated, likely to get the justices to change their minds. And Chief Justice John Roberts even made this clear. In his statement that he made today announcing he was going to start an investigation into how this leak happened, he said that this was a first draft and that the votes are liable to change. I think that's what the clerk probably wanted to happen, where he basically wanted to say, you know, hey, this isn't set in stone, but this is where we're leaning. So, hey, guys on the left, if you're pro-abortion, you should probably start pressuring uh, the court to change their mind. But again, this is not a done deal. Um, I, I think there had been rumors going around. The sort of common thinking was that this was probably going to happen, that Roe was on borrowed time. The, the, the justices 
Uh, the conservative justices had had sort of indicated they, that they were they were liable to revisit Roe. They didn't think it was necessarily well decided law. Um, in this particular draft, we see that it was it, it, they, that Alito, who is, is likely the one who wrote the draft, it was egregiously decided. Roe was not well decided. It was egregiously decided. So this is clearly something that they thought needed to be addressed. Um, and again, I, I think that it's something that this particular clerk was hoping that, you know, if they put enough pressure on it, they can switch one judge over and that they can keep Roe in place. Mm-hmm. Doug, isn't the clerkship community a small one? Is there... Is there 30 clerks at the Supreme Court? Are there 70 clerks? How many clerks are there? I mean, this this can't be a big community. We, we can't it can't take a long time to figure out who did this. Absolutely. And that's I think what's what's probably going to be the case is that you can't really go through that many people. It, it, like I said, this is so close knit. This is so uh, close. It's almost like Fort Knox levels of security right. around these types of decisions. But this is why it's so it, it's, it's so shocking as well. This person has ended their legal career. And I don't mean that in the sense of like, oh, you know, me- metaphorically, like this is done. You will not – this person will never be hired in the law profession again because they have broken the ultimate code of conduct. They have broken the ultimate trust between the justices. This is one of the things I think that's also not getting a lot of attention. This completely breaks trust between the justices themselves. How do how would you feel if you're maybe say Clarence Thomas and you can maybe believe that Sonia Sotomayor's uh, clerks are going to reveal private information about the goings on of the court? It creates this distrust between the justices, who even you know Ruth Bader Ginsburg and and other conservative justices used to have positive relationships. It's very difficult to imagine a future where that type of cordiality and relationship is allowed to exist again when this type of thing is looming in the back of their minds, like hey. Maybe this really big court decision that we're still planning out, we're still thinking about the results of, could get leaked by an angry uh, an angry clerk. I don't know if I can trust them anymore. Yeah, is uh, Doug? Is this behavior uh, just um, mean that this clerk will lose their their job and their inability to get hired again in, in the legal profession, or is this a criminal activity? I mean, it's I, I am not aware if it's criminal activity or not. I would assume that it is. I would need to speak with our legal experts yeah. to see if it was if it was criminal activity. But what it is, in, at least very clearly, is wildly inappropriate and incredibly damaging to our institutions. Again, yeah. the Supreme Court, like I've mentioned over and over and over again, I really want to hit this home, was one of those institutions that Americans viewed as apolitical. Of course, there had been sort of incidents where people were from one side or the other were to look at the Supreme Court and say, ah, well, I didn't agree with that decision, or ah, I didn't like how that happened. But they still believed that justice was being done. They still believed that the court at least had that backing and that institutional security and integrity, that the, that the law was being done, that justice was being done. With this decision, with the fact that now this has been completely politicized as a decision, regardless of how the case goes, if a justice switches, if a justice decides that they're going to go in a different direction, how do we we know it wasn't because they felt like their lives were threatened or their security was threatened based on the leak. If, if you know, it still stays the same, then people are going to be pissed off and say, oh, well, you know, this leak didn't do anything. And I was so mad because I was hoping that I could change their mind. It's mm-hmm. just, it, it completely creates this mess that could have been easily avoidable, if not for the actions of this one rogue individual. Mm-hmm. Doug Blair is my guest. He's the news producer for The Daily Signal and co-host of The Daily Signal podcast. If you have a question, he, he was at the Supreme Court with a microphone in hand. And when we come back, I want to hear about some of those interviews. I want to hear what some of the people were saying. And if you have a question for Doug, because he's a man that was there in the moment, you can uh, send your question over via text, 877-933-2484.
Again, 877-933-2484. Be right back. with Doug Blair. He's over at the Daily Signal, and he was at the Supreme Court talking to people with microphone in hand, getting some responses to what was uh, being discussed about the uh, leak draft of uh, Roe being overturned. Doug, what did you hear from people? I heard some really interesting things and some things that actually kind of disturbed me about the sort of, let's use a term that the left likes to use, misinformation about how this might impact Uh, abortion in the United States. One of the things I heard on a regular basis was that this type of uh, decision by the court would actually allow them to remove things like gay marriage or even interracial marriage, right? (laughs) Like the idea that you can remove, which is just so weird to me that this idea that like, oh, well, you know, we're getting rid of abortion. Now we're going to go for interracial marriage between white people and black people. Mm. Like their minds just jumped to that. and they, They were deadly serious about it, which to me was shocking. Um, just to sort of put listeners' minds at ease, those are completely different cases. Uh, the fact that abortion or Roe would be sort of struck down and the fact that it was kind of a, a decision that wasn't very well reasoned out from a constitutional perspective doesn't mean that interracial marriage is next on the chopping block. Um, I would hope that that probably would stick around for a little while at least. Um, but there was this genuine fear that this was a sort of domino effect that would get rid of a lot of other policies that the left is a fan of. Um, a secondary thing that I used to hear a lot was, or that I heard a lot while I was talking with people was this fear that women will die, right? You know, mm-hmm. this decision will make it so that women will die. It's, it's impossible. You know, we're going to go back to the, the dark ages where women would get back alley abortions. Um, I mean, that's not true either. From a purely legal perspective, what this decision would do would give the decision to, to legislate abortions back to the states. So you would see in certain jurisdictions like California, Oregon, my home state, uh, there would be probably very strong abortion protections put into law. Those are states that have uh, have beliefs about how abortion should be done and that abortion should be legal. They would likely do that in the law. There are certain other states that have the so-called trigger laws that when Roe v. Wade is overturned, they would just immediately make abortion illegal. So this would be an issue, again, that is decided by the most representative body of the American people, which is their legislatures. Um, it, it's not an, an idea that you know you would have a blanket ban on abortion nationwide. It would, it would be going back to the states for them to decide for themselves. So there was just a lot of information that was coming from the, the, the leftists that I spoke to that was just plain inaccurate and mostly fear-mongering. Mm-hmm. Is this a time to generate some enthusiasm with the voter base or try to raise funds for the Democratic Party? What, is, what else is going on? I mean, it would be foolish if, if, you know, people on the left weren't going to try and take advantage of this. Of course, you know, one of the things that they've fear-mongered for for years now is that if Republicans take power, they are going to remove abortion rights, right? They're going to basically say that abortion is illegal at all stages of the pregnancy and that, you know, this is going to be federal law, which, I mean, currently the, the proposal that we're seeing from at least the Supreme Court, and at least from what we're seeing from Republicans, is that, no, this is a state's issue, that this is something that the states have to decide. Obviously, there's a, a large pro-life uh, contingency that would love to see abortion banned at the federal level and would love to see abortion banned in every state and all, in all territories of the United States. 
But currently what the Supreme Court decision is debating about whether or not this should be something that is considered a constitutional right. Like you have a constitutional right to free speech. You have a constitutional right to bear arms. Do you have a constitutional right to an abortion? Um, It seems like the justices have said no, and it seems like they're basically saying if you want to, as a state, legislate this, knock yourselves out. Mm -hmm. I'm starting to see some of the signs come back that say, keep your your bans and your laws off my body. We... uh... We put those aside for a while during the the uh, vaccine mandates. Absolutely. That was the thing that was so striking to me as well. You know, these, these same people who were decrying the government, uh, quote unquote, invading their personal autonomy. That was another phrase that popped up. Women's autonomy, like the idea that you can murder a baby in the womb is somehow a, a, a question of bodily autonomy. That, that was this thing that they kept repeating over and over and over again. The same people who would say that you have to lose your job if you don't get a, uh, get a vaccine or that you're not allowed to take your mask off lest you're killing grandma if you, wear your, if you don't have your mask on at all times. I mean, this, it's, it's plain and simple hypocrisy for a lot of these leftists over whether or not they think that the government should be involved in making personal health decisions for them. Uh, I mean, again, abortion is not an issue of personal bodily autonomy. Let's just get that out of the way. This is an issue of life. It is whether or not a human being deserves to live. If you think that abortion is acceptable, you are endorsing murder. I I think that it's it's a far different solution than, you know, you are going to be required by law, by government mandate, by the threat of force to wear a mask or to inject yourself with a chemical in order to continue working and continue to have a job. These are two completely separate issues, but the left has decided that they're going to try and conflate bodily autonomy with abortion. Mm -hmm. I don't know why they're so quick to race to the idea that abortion is outlawed uh, when it's not. It goes back to the states, and I, I don't know why there's so much uh, misinformation, if you want to use that word, about what's going to happen if they overturn Roe. Well, again, I think it's this fear-mongering that they're trying to cultivate. They're trying to raise power. This is what the left will do. They will try and lie and misinform the public to basically say, if you don't do what we want, this bad thing will happen, right? If you don't vote in... Uh, you know, leftist candidates, if you don't do these things, if you don't support our causes, then you're going to lose your rights. And it's just not true. Again, as we've discussed in, in this interview, and like as we've discussed, I think, from the Heritage Foundation's perspective about why this is legally dubious, it's not a constitutional right, it's something that the states should legislate. But that doesn't sell as well, right? Because the idea that Californians will have uh, access to abortion, but, you know, J- Jane Doe in Utah won't, that doesn't sit right because they want utter control. They want complete control over the institutions. Therefore, they're going to make stuff up. Uh, any legal scholar, even uh, even scholars from the left, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was infamous for saying this, that she didn't think that Roe had been decided on particularly stable ground. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, they don't, they don't endorse that because they, that makes them look bad. But most legal scholars will tell you that Roe was not properly decided and that it's very, very shaky. Uh, the fact that now they're, they're going to say that if Roe goes away, then all of these abortion laws are going are gonna to get into place where even in California you can't get abortion is just ridiculous. Of course the legislatures of these, these blue states are going to put these measures into place. It's a matter of where they're going to do it, but it's not a matter of whether or not it's going to happen. It's mostly going to be states that have strong pro-life cultures uh, that are going to keep these sort of restrictive abortion laws in place, either banning a abortion entirely or setting very, very stringent standards of when you can get an abortion. Mm-hmm. Doug, um, there, uh, Joe Biden is on record in 2012 saying life begins at conception. 
Mm-hmm. So there you go. And then today he said, Roe says that all basic mainstream religions have historically concluded that the existence of a human life and being is a question. Huh. I mean, I don't know what Bible he's reading, but it's clearly not the Christian Bible. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not a religious scholar, but that seems to not pass the smell test on, on first glance. Um, this is just sort of more evidence that Joe Biden has run headlong into the radical left. Um when it was more a, a, a conscious decision that Democrats could be more pro-life, and he obviously expressed his quote-unquote Catholic faith about how he believed that abortion was wrong and that a human being is a human being. Now that the Democratic Party has shifted so far in the direction of woke radicals and activists, that is not a tenable position for Democrats to have. So Joe Biden, along with the rest of his party, decided to go fully woke and say that, well, you know, all world religions don't really know what a person is. Mm-hmm. I'm a practicing Christian, and I can tell you for a fact that we know exactly when a person begins. It's a conception. This idea that, you know, we're going to try and muddy the waters with religious uh, language is just ridiculous and mildly insulting, to be frank with you. The fact that he thinks that he can use that as a club to say to religious people, well, you know, you really don't know your own faith. Uh, one of the speakers at today's events at the Supreme Court was a, a Jewish woman who claimed that in the Torah there was very strong evidence to suggest that you know, abortion was not only if not immoral, but that sometimes it was necessary. And to me, that was just like, again, I, I, I can't speak 100 percent. I'm not a rabbi, but that just doesn't seem to pass the smell test from all of the study that I have particularly done of the Old Testament and everything that I've spoken with religious scholars about this issue. It seems pretty cut and dry to me. Mm-hmm. There's been so many things that have come out, and I've tried to follow some of them today just because I knew I was going to be talking to you. But some of the outrageous things that are being said by people who you would otherwise think, um, where do you get your information? Uh, There was a a woman that was quoted in Rolling Stone saying, I believe God gave women the ability to terminate pregnancies long before men started negotiating our right to do so. You just start to see some of these these angry, irrational uh, comments that are made. And this other uh, guy from National Review was saying, speaking to the press on Capitol steps, Senator Blumenthal calls for another vote on the Women's Health Protection Act, which would establish a nationwide right to abortion through all nine months of pregnancy. I mean, that should just make any American's blood run. Oh, yeah. The idea that you can abort a baby. I actually had a conversation with a woman uh, this morning about whether or not abortion up until the point of birth was acceptable. And they kept trying to deflect. They kept saying that this isn't a serious position. Uh, clearly, they weren't listening to that particular speech because this is a very clear proposal from congressional Democrats that this is, is this is acceptable, that abortion is an issue that is explicitly between a woman and her doctor, and that even if you have a preconceived notion like, oh, you shouldn't murder a baby two days before it's born, that that's not your business, that the idea is it's between a woman and her doctor and you're not a part of it at all. Uh, I, I just I, I think that it's, it's very much a projection. They seem to think that the, the conservative movement uh, is more concerned with controlling women and controlling their actions and saving the lives of the unborn. But as we see, when it's put to scrutiny, when we actually do the research and we actually expose these types of lies that they're telling, it falls apart very quickly. They can try and pretend that there's nobody in favor of having an abortion mm-hmm. uh, up to the day of birth. But, I mean, very clearly that's not true. Yeah. Thank you, Doug Blair. You do good, you do good radio. Appreciate you. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me on. You bet. I appreciate it. You bet. Doug Blair's been my guest. He is a writer at DailySignal.com, also host of the Daily Signal podcast. We'll take a short break, and Dr. Greg Borgon will be joining me on communication fidelity. That's all next. 
back with Dr. Greg Borgond, and he is uh, always so gracious to come on the show. I don't think I have a guest that's more prepared than him. (laughs) And I I always appreciate how you organize your content, how you think about things, how you think through things biblically. And today we're going to talk about communication fidelity. And I look at Proverbs 12, 18, there is, there's one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise bring healing. Now, now, we're living in a day with a lot of communication infidelity. We've got misinformation, suppression of free speech, and uh, what, what people say and what people hear are not always the same. No, it certainly isn't. Anyway, welcome, Greg. Thank you. It's good yeah. to be with you. Well, currently, and in just listening to your last guest as well, talking about the misinformation that's out there and that people believe what they want to believe and they hear what they want to hear, Uh, So currently we're experiencing this unprecedented and unbridled, unrestrained communication in the form of manipulative uh, information or the suppression of of free speech, for instance. Such communication is too often used to mislead or hurt the respondent. So the power of the tongue can heal or destroy, as the scripture uh, you just read. I, I think to set the tone, Bill, it would be helpful to walk down a few scriptures to kind of give us a framework for our discussion that will continue. I practically insist. <laughs> so uh, we, um, we already read Proverbs uh, twelve eighteen. Let me read a few more passages. Proverbs eighteen twenty one confirms um, the following. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits, good or bad. And then we read in Matthew eighteen eighteen. Verily I say unto you, whatever soever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you shall lose on earth shall be loosed on heaven. So these verses uh, that I'm about to read to you now provide, I think, much good or uh, how much good or bad our tongues or words can do. So this power and responsibility is discussed several times in the Bible. For instance, we read in Proverbs 13, 3, whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Proverbs uh, or Ephesians 4, 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give uh, grace to those who hear. Then Proverbs eighteen nineteen, we read a brother who has been insulted is harder to win back than a walled city. Hmm. And arguments separate people like the barred gates of a palace. Proverbs 10.20, The words of a good person are like pure silver, but an evil person's thoughts are worth very little. Proverbs 26.20, Without wood, a fire will go out, and without gossip, quarreling will stop. Proverbs 11.17, Your own soul is nourished when you are kind, but you destroy yourself when you're cruel. 1 Peter 3, 9, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay everyone with a blessing because of this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. And so there's other scriptures related to how we should be communicating with each other. But I think it's probably important in this day again, as we often communicate our thoughts and feelings through things like Facebook and Twitter or some other social 
media and, and email. Sometimes we, we hide behind our screens and communicate things we would not communicate in person for good or for bad. So communication between God and us or between maybe, you know, another person and ourselves can be easily misrepresented, misunderstood, or manipulated for the purposes of ill will or, or harm. So I think it's probably good, Bill, that we kind of understand what is this model of communication? What are the elements that contribute to a dialogue from one person to another? And how does it get so jumbled up in the middle? How does it get so distorted? How do we hear what wasn't meant to be conveyed? How do we convey what wasn't meant to be heard? Mm -hmm. And so we have to understand the dynamics of how communication travels from, you know, the person that's given the message to the person who's receiving the message. I'm so glad you're bringing this up because, you know, I'm all attention right now, Greg, because I don't know if you know this, but I I have an afternoon radio show. And and literally every day, you know, you pray that what's being said and what's being transmitted is what's being received correctly. Yeah. Because there's that, you know, that chance that people are going to hear what they're going to hear and they're going to have, you know, the enemy influence uh, certain things that get said. And and then I'm going to make my own mistakes throughout, you know, the week. Yeah. Or I, I, I mean, I, I misspeak it, or I say something I, I didn't realize I misspoke until I hear the, the show. Yeah, in between the transmission and the reception of the message is all kind of, of interference and static. Um, and sometimes there's also things that can help clarify what's being said, but more often than not, it's static mm-hmm. that uh, interrupts the transmission as well as distorts what you really hear or what you really want to hear. What do you mean by static? Static could be all kinds of noise. It could be our political persuasion. Oh, gotcha. Those kinds of things. We'll get into that in a little more. But let's just talk about the elements of communication at a very general level. (laughs) We're going to have a a short lesson in physics here. Oh, good. Well, dumb it down for me. (laughs) Right. So communication, of course, is the process of transferring information from sender to receiver. So um, the basic components uh, of the structure of communication include, first of all, a source. Uh, some, some source could be a person, it could be um, something written, but it, it's a source. So the transmitter converts the information from the source into signals suitable for com- the communications channel, whatever vehicle we're using to move from being transmitted to being received. While the signals propagate through the channel, noise signals arise. These signals, uh, along with noise, will reach the receiver end where message signal is filtered from the transmitted signal along with the noise. Stay with me, audience. To some extent, the noise signals can be filtered out and the message signal can be reproduced, Uh, just like you're hearing in the audience right now, us uh, communicating. Mm -hmm. It's not that you're in the room, but you're hearing it through this whole communication apparatus. So to some extent, the noise signals can be filtered out and the message can be reproduced. So basically, there are three elements in a communication system. Transmitter, communication channel, and receiver. Let's just discuss each of those very briefly. The transmitter unit. The information cannot be transmitted in its raw format through uh, the communications channel. So the transmitter unit is used to convert this raw data or this raw information uh, into a format that's understandable by the communication channel. Different methods like modulation and coding may be used depending on the equipment. And uh, mobile phones, for instance, and AM radio transmitters are some of the most familiar 
uh, transmitters we know of. Modulation is employed to superimpose a low-frequency message signal on top of the high frequency to carry it and to protect it. The communication channel itself is defined as the medium through which the signal is sent from transmitter to receiver. We're going to tie all this in in a, in a minute. I hope so, because <laughs> right now I feel like I'm at Radio Shack and I'm completely lost. <laughs> when the signal uh, is propagated through the channel, it gets affected by noise. And we're going to talk about what, what noise impacts what we, what we hear. And also, um, channel attenuation degrades the signal strength, so it has to, the power decreases and it has to be amplified, of course. In radio communications, for instance, uh, air is the medium, and uh, in satellite communication systems, both air and vacuum are kind of what they're transmitting through. Okay. Then you have the receiver. The receiver, signals through, uh, that are sent through the communication channel reach this receiver where it's decoded and demodulated to extract the message. Since channel attenuation degrades it, sometimes we use an amplifier to amplify it. And when we talk about noise, the noise in this particular scenario we're talking about are uh, any unwanted signals that interfere with the information, which includes atmospheric changes, for instance, lightning and thunderstorms or other communication systems that can cause noises to, uh, in the transmitted signal. Different techniques can be used to emit that. All right, let's bring this down to the level that we, we need to discuss. It would be helpful, I know you can't do this, audience, driving, but if you can mentally get this picture, and those of you that are home, you might want to take out a sheet of paper. And what I'd like you to do is to put six boxes side by side on a horizontal, horizontally on a piece of paper separated by just a short distance between each box. And I want you to label these boxes. The first one to the left is the information source. The second box is the transmitter. So you just write that in that box. The third box is the communications channel, um, which also includes noise. The fourth box is the receiver, and the fifth box is the destination. So if you've got that picture in your mind or you've drawn it on a piece of paper, the bookends of that linked boxes um, include the source and the destination. So all communication begins with a source. There are many sources. For our purposes, let's define these resources as God and his word, uh, the world, which could include culture, philosophies, or ideology, the flesh, which are messages oftentimes we give ourselves that may be erroneous in nature, is noise to properly interpret what's really happening to us, and then the devil. So the source can come from any of these four uh, locations, God, the world, the flesh, or the devil. On the other end of this chain of boxes, you have the destination, the ultimate place where this message is supposed to reside or recede, the destination for communication may be a particular audience. It could be a group of people or it could be a person. So let's get down into the granularity of this a little bit further. Regardless of the source, the message can be communicated verbally, nonverbally, in writing, visually, or electronically. Those are all the modes uh, on which uh, we can transmit whatever message we're receiving from any of those sources. So, you know, email would be an example of that. Um, your, your cell phone would be an example of that. That kind of a thing. Because you're speaking into it, and you're communicating with somebody else, you're transmitting something else. 
When I was trained, Bill, as a naval intelligence officer, I was taught that nonverbal communication was often far more revealing of the true intentions of the message bearer than what was actually said. We were actually trained to watch people's gestures, um, how they, their deportment, how they carried themselves. So, for instance, someone who is lying might stare or look away at a, cru- at a crucial moment, a possible sign that they're moving eyes, uh, they're, they're re- moving their eyes around as they try to think about what to say next. The research conducted by Geiselman at UCLA, UCLA uh, corroborated this, finding that people sometimes look away briefly when lying. Well, that, the only way that you can observe that is if you're across from them, if you visually can see them and look at their body language. So, but roughly 65% of our communication is nonverbal. Hmm. Nonverbal communication might include facial expressions, could be even the tone of voice, could be movement, the way somebody is moving. It could be even the, their appearance, eye contact, gestures, or posture. Those are all nonverbals. The only one that you can actually pick up on when the person is not in front of you, you can't visually see them, is their tone of voice. How are they communicating? Mm-hmm. When somebody says, for instance, oh, yeah, I love you, or they say, I love you, you can tell the difference between those two just because of the inflection and, and the tone of voice. Mm-hmm. So you can pick up on that in communication when you uh, are hearing something but not seeing them in, in, in front of you. How does that account for the success of radio when you hear that 65% of our communication is nonverbal? Well, I mean, it's tone of voice, it's sincerity, okay. it's intent. Okay. People can pick up on that in terms of the way in which somebody is communicating. So it's very important when you're communicating over the airwaves that you're really um, putting the accent on the right syllable, so to speak, Mm -hmm. um, as you're trying to communicate a truth or a concept or an idea or even an emotion. Mm -hmm. And if it's just monotone, then nobody can read that as a tone other than to say the person's disinterested. Mm -hmm. Well, I really need to take a break right now. Was that sincere? (laughs) Yeah, that was very sincere. (laughs) Oh, good. I'm relieved. Dr. Greg Borgon is my guest. We're talking about communication fidelity. This is a fascinating study. And if you just joined us, you're going to have to hear it from the beginning because he went through some pretty important information, which was not the easiest to absorb, but I think I got it. Uh, So we'll find out more when we come back about communication fidelity. Dr. Greg Borgon is my guest. Dr. Greg Borgon is my guest. We're talking about communication fidelity. This is a, a road that we're going down, which is very interesting. It's not anything I hear every day, but <laughs> uh, it, it is. It's good to lay this foundation out. This foundation work, you got your your information source, uh, which would be God, the world, the flesh, and the, and the devil, and then the destination. Who are the listening ears, and what happens in between? Yeah, what happens in between the the transmission of the message to the reception of the message. We just finished talking about non-formal uh, or uh, uh, non-verbal communication 
which often has to do with uh, gestures and eye contact and tone of voice. And But most of the communication today is going to be in written form via email or Twitter or mm-hmm. Facebook or something of that nature. So when we communicate by other uh, than in, uh, by means other than a person uh, where body language can't be observed other than maybe, you know, tone of voice as we discussed, nonverbals are not going to be helpful to determine the true intent of the communication because oftentimes we receive communication, we don't know quite what to make of it. What are the, what's the real intention they're trying to get across? What are they trying to convey? What are they trying to compel me to do? And how much of that is based on fact rather than fiction? And should I respond? You know, all those questions come into your mind when you receive that message. Now, this third box, if you jotted that down or you have this mental picture of these um, five boxes, the, the, the middle box is the communication channel. So noise in the communication channel between transmission and reception can distort or it can clarify the transmitted message. The noise can be cultural could represent cultural values or what's happening in your culture right now or the heat of the moment. It could be political, and we've got a lot of that going on now between Republicans and and Democrats and and what's happening in our country. It could be theological. We could be coming from a predisposition that suggests we're Reformed theologians or we're Arminians or Baptists, and we see things a little differently. And so that's uh, some of the noise that we have to work our, our way through. It could be personal in terms of the messages we've been telling ourselves. Maybe we've always felt because we've been told by our parents that we wouldn't amount to anything. That's going to be noise for any message that we hear, and it's going to distort it, or you're going to extract from that message only those things that will support your contention that you've already made about yourself, Mm -hmm. unless it's corrected. So that's one of the things. Or it could be spiritual um, uh, influence. It could be from the enemy. It could be from one of his minions. It could be um, playing on your predispositions and biases towards certain types of sin that will cloud the message that's been sent in the one that you're receiving now. So that's all about the noise in this communication channel. So the message itself, Bill, can be misrepresented. It can be garbled or altered or twisted or changed or even falsified. Uh, or uh, is just simply misleading or simply interfere with the true intention of the transmitted message um, when uh, this transmitted message that that you're receiving. So the idea is is that this communication channel is compromised by untruths or lies. So this interference can be mediated or clarified, in my view, by tuning your listening skills through the discipline of seeking the truth. How do we know how to do that? How do we take a look at even a website and determine whether or not the information in there is valid or is invalid? How do we assess it? What kind of import do we put on it? What, uh, what, how do we weigh it? And so we have to develop some skills in order to be able to get through all of this, this noise. And one way this can be done is by asking questions, such as do I, for instance, communicating even by email. Do I understand you correctly? Let me repeat back what I heard you say, what I understand you to mean. Oftentimes that can clear up misconceptions because we have a tendency in Western culture because of the way we've been brought up to answer questions nobody's asking. And so when somebody conveys a message to us, our mind isn't even listening to the message as much as we're trying to configure a response that we think we're hearing 
And so consequently, that's part of the noise. And so it, it behooves us to simply step back and say, well, wait a minute. Here's what I heard you say. Is this what you're trying to communicate? Did I interpret it correctly? That can get a, rid of a, a lot of noise. Another approach may be simply to ask, what is informing your message? What circumstances are influencing your remarks? What supports your argument? What is influencing your comments? So determining what steps or shape, what, what shapes the messenger's observations or proclamations will help you better understand their true intent. Are their comments based on truth or fiction? Is the message based on personal bias, incorrect perceptions, or uninformed observations? What merit should you, the hearer, attach to these remarks? So it's important for us to understand that, and I've often wanted to do this. I felt that if I was a journalist and I was listening to a politician and they were declaring how much they agreed with my values, uh, the first thing I would ask them, could you please tell me what informs, conditions, or establish the values you say you hold? Because it could be completely different than what informs, conditions, and establishes my values. Hopefully mine is from the Bible and the Word of God, um, and it, theirs may be from secular humanism. Mm -hmm. And so the outcome it's going to produce, even though we might identify the same values, will be absolutely different depending on what's informing their perceptions or their comments or their statements about values. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. It does. And I think we often will carry on parallel monologues. I'm not so much listening to what you're saying as I'm waiting for you to stop talking so yeah. I can start talking. Exactly. That's so. exactly what goes on. Especially today, you listen to various commentators on, on even legacy media, and uh, they're making pronouncements. And even if a guest objects to what they're saying, they're talking over that guest, mm -hmm. or it's like they never even heard them because it's a monologue. It's not a dialogue. Right. They're using you as a foil for their monologue. Right. So... That's, we've talked about the information source being God, the world, the flesh, or the devil. We talked about uh, how that message is transmitted. It could be either verbally, it could be, um, you know, it, it could be nonverbal if they're in front of us or if we pick up on their tone of voice. It could be written, it could be visual, it could be electronically communicated, it's transmitted to us. And then we talked briefly about the filter, and we'll get into that, or the, the noise in the communication channel that interferes with us really understanding the message that they're trying to convey. So any communication is impacted by the noise interference represented by the filters in place between the transmission of the information and the reception of that information. Yeah. Now, Greg, I don't want to confuse people. I want people to understand this important aspect of this and I want to make sure I'm understanding it correctly. When you talk about this, the, the communication channel, we're not necessarily uh, talking about a device, are we? No, no. What we're talking about, actually, um, is um, we're talking about something that could be, it could be Wi-Fi, could be the channel of communication. It could be uh, some network, the, cellular data. The means in which we communicate. Yeah, it, it's the channel in which the message travels, okay. whether it's communicated verbally or otherwise. Okay. Um, it's, it's how's it being conveyed? What, what's the apparatus gotcha. that's moving okay. it from transmission to reception? That help? Yes, it does. So as we discussed earlier, interfering noise could be, for instance, language barriers. Now, we're talking about this, the, the, the um, 
channel right now of communication, the communication channel, that in order for us to receive it correctly, we've got to somehow mediate the noise that interferes with the reception and the clarity of that message. So some of those noises might include um, uh, language barriers, for instance, could be interfering, understanding the message. It could be um, our ethnicity, uh, social and cultural values. It could be even environmental factors. Um, it could be even our intellect, our maturation. Um, it could be personal bias or presuppositions. It could be some emotions that we're feeling at the moment. It could be some distraction we're having to deal with while we're listening it to this message. It could be the motives of the communicator. It could be our own motives. It could be uh, our worldview. We could have two different separate worldviews. Mm-hmm. It could be theological frameworks or conflicts. It could be even physical impairments. It could also be sin. Mm-hmm. It could also be sin or influences from the world, the flesh, and the enemy. Yeah. Well, I hate to put a filter on this conversation, but, you know, <laughs> we're out of time. So I, I have to put the filter on and probably... We'll just pick this up next time. Oh, that'd be great. It's an interesting Bill. conversation. I'm I'm in a little over my head right now with some of this, but I, I do have to process this. And uh, you're you're a great teacher. It's just a little bit of is is kind of um, you you have to see it and lay it out. I'm a slow I'm a slow processor. <laughs> Not a problem. Thanks, no. Dr. Greg Borgon has been my guest. And if you could go to heartofawarrior.org and learn more about Greg and his writing and his books, they're all great. We'll take a break. When we come back, I have uh, Susie Larson as my guest next hour. We're going to chat about her life and her new book. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.